Thank you for joining us again this evening. And um, tonight we are going to be in um, our third sermon, I believe it is, through the uh, book of 1 John. Tonight we're going to be talking about how do we know that we know God? How do we know that we know God? Uh, I, I feel like we're going to be talking a lot about this topic. Um, book of John is, is a commonplace to send people when we talk about assurance. Um, uh, and there's a lot that could be said about that. But, um, but how do we know that we know God? Before we continue tonight, let's pray together. Lord, I just ask for grace and help now to open your word. I pray, Father, that you would bless this, the hearing and teaching of your word, that you would apply it by the power of your Holy Spirit to our hearts and to our lives. Uh, Lord, that those who know you would have true assurance of faith, evidence, God, by the work of your Spirit present in our lives, Lord, to change us and cause us to live for you. And I pray this evening, Father, that if there is someone here who does not know that they know you, I pray that this evening, God, that they would come to know you and find that joy and peace and hope that is only found uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. So bless us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And uh, it is, you know, let's ask that question. How do we know that, that we know God? You know, many, many struggle with assurance, and I'm not going to, the sermon isn't particularly on assurance, but um, many do struggle with that. I'm, I think there are many who do know God, but they really wrestle with assurance. And there are some, I'm afraid, who have assurance that they know God when they really don't. Um, and in John's letter, um, there were some things going on, and it was making these churches, it was making them wonder, well, what does it mean to really know God? How do you know? And that's what we're going to talk about uh, this evening. And so now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. As we read from 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. It says, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word of God. You may be seated. How do we know that we know God? I want to see three answers from our passage this evening. Number one is we look to Christ's sacrifice. Number two, we keep his commandments. And number three, we walk as he walked. So three things. We look to Christ's sacrifice. We keep his commandments. 
and we walk as he walked. So first here, how do we know that we know God? We look to Christ's sacrifice. And those first couple verses there, he says, My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. A prominent feature of 1 John is he says things like this, and he's giving people these tests, if you will, by which to examine themselves, and, and, and not just to examine themselves, but, but also to examine uh, others and, and in, in that regard, because uh, it's clear in the letter that, first John, that John is trying to refute some false teaching that has become... Uh, that has become prominent in the church, and it becomes evident in the letter that the pe- these people left the church because of this false teaching that they embraced. And we talked about in our first sermon that there was this kind of proto-Gnosticism, this early Gnosticism, which was a, a, an early uh, heresy, really. And so uh, one of the, the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, which means, which means knowledge. And so a, a key uh, aspect of Gnosticism is that they claim to have this kind of special knowledge about, about God. Uh, and to be to kind of to be in, if you will, you had to have this special knowledge. And of course, what that would do to these true believers in, John's, in the Christian community that John's writing to is that would make them wonder, do I really know God? These people say that they know God, and they're saying all these things that you, they know. And it makes me wonder, do I know God? Do I have the knowledge that I need to have to know God? How do you know that you know God? Well, the first answer here is that we look to, to Christ's sacrifice. And so in verses 1 and 2 there that we just read, it, it really ties in uh, a lot with uh, what we talked about last time in verses 5 through 10. So... You know, if you look there in 5 through 10, it says that the, there were these false professors who were, saying that, who were saying that they had fellowship with God, the God who is light, right? We talked about that. They're saying that they had fellowship with the God who is light, while at the same time, John says they were walking in darkness. And John says that's impossible. You can't, if God is light, you can't walk in darkness and say that you have fellowship uh, with him. And... and uh, to the contrary, those who truly know God, we talked about last time, those who truly know God, the way that we talk about sin is we don't say we have no sin. Rather, we admit that we have sin and we confess our sin. To who? To him who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that leads into this, this text this evening Well, John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And so, you know, John, he uses this language throughout the letter, you know, my little children. We talked about how, you know, John is the the last living apostle. He's he's old. He'd He'd be quite old at this point. He's writing these letters and he, he, he loves, he loves the church. He loves God's people. And he, he calls them his children, his little children. It's like, it's, like, it's like they're his own. He views them as his children, and he is their father. And he writes this letter because he loves them. And because he loves them as he loves his own children, the things that he wants them to do is not sin. <laughs> right? When you love people, you don't want them to sin. 
Because what does sin do? It destroys. It, it destroys everything. Sin is deadly. John is telling them, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. It goes without saying that a Christian shouldn't sin. Sin is deadly. It's destructive. Even in the lives of believers whose sin is forgiven, it can wreak havoc in our lives and steal our joy and destroy our relationships and render us impotent from God, for God and for his purposes. And, and, and later, in, John will say, I mean, the, the Christian life should not be characterized by sin to begin with, but if you let it in there, it will destroy you. And so, in spite of this, however, John knows reality. And that is that the essence of Christianity is, it, is that it acknowledges sin and that even believers will have sin. And that for, therefore, Christ is the solution for our sin. And so, John is saying, he's, you know, very pastorally and very wisely. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But then he says, but if you do sin, see, he, he, he knows our weakness. And he says, but if you do sin, he says, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope if you do sin. Why? Because we have an advocate, <laughs> he says, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is it's a, it's, it's an incredible thing. The word advocate is the same word that's used in the Gospel of John, uh, concerning the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'll send you a, a, a helper. And, uh, and the word is um, uh, uh, a pa- the paraclete. You might have heard it's called a, the paraclete. It means helper. It can, also mean, it can also mean advocate. What it means is it means someone who comes alongside. And, and in, in this case, it, it, it means someone who comes alongside to, to, to plead our case for us. And so what John is saying is that Oh, he's saying, little children, don't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is, Jesus Christ, he is the righteous one. I mean, I was just thinking about this because, I mean, think about what we talked about this morning. And then, you know, this comes up this evening. And I didn't necessarily plan it that way, but that's the way the Lord worked it out. John is saying, when we do sin, as followers of Christ, we don't have to lose heart. Right? We don't. You see, if, if you are a follower of Christ, you will be convicted of sin. You will grieve over your sin. And, and the devil will tempt you, and you will think that there will be times when you have sinned beyond repair. And, the, and there will be times when you think that, that I, this, is, this is too great. I, there's no way God can forgive me for this, and there's no way God can, can, can write this. I've messed up, and it's too big. And what, and what John is saying is. My little children, when you do sin, remember, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You're not righteous, but he is. And he stands in the Father, in the gap between you, pleading your case for you because he has paid the price. And that's what it says. He is the propitiation for our sin, the exact same word we looked at this morning. He, he satisfied God's justice, God's holy demand for justice. He satisfied it by paying for our sins on the cross so that now we can be forgiven of our sins and so that he can stand at the right hand of the Father. And at this very moment, he's advocating for us. I mean, you could just imagine the book of Hebrews 
talks about how Jesus is a high priest who he offered himself once for all. And he stands at, and, and as the priest, it's, it's as if Jesus right there, right now, is presenting his wounds to God. And saying, see, my hands, my side. When Jesus was on the cross and he, he completed the work and he drank that cup, the cup of God's wrath, down to the very dregs, Jesus' words were, it is finished. What does that mean? It means, it means the job is done. It means there's no, more, there's, no more, there's no more atoning to be done for your sin. Jesus has paid it all. All to him I owe. He's paid it all. There's nothing left for us to pay. It, the work is done. And so, Jesus, so what John is saying is remember, little children, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is propitiation for our sins, not just for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. All who will look to him, all who will believe in him, all who will trust in him have their sins covered by God. So how do we know that we know God? Well, one of the ways that you know is this, is that you look to Christ. And you, you look to Christ's sacrifice. That's how you know. You see, if Jesus, remember, he said some weird things. He said, I did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. If you think you don't need God, you're not looking to Christ's sacrifice, and you don't know God. But if you know you need God, if you know that you're a sinner, if, you don't, if you're not like one of these people we talked about last time who says they have no sin, or you act like your sin's a big deal, but if you say, I know I'm a sinner, and I confess my sin to him who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, if we look to Christ, if we stand, before, if we look to God and say, God, there's nothing in me that deserves mercy, but for Christ's sake, have mercy on me. That's how you know you know God. When you know that there's no hope apart from Jesus Christ, but you know that in Jesus Christ, there's all the hope in the world. That's how you know that you know God. Number one is we look to Christ's sacrifice. Number two is we keep his commands. We keep his commands. Verses uh, three through uh, five there. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know uh, that we are in him. And, and he continues on there in verse six. So this is a major theme of the book, so we're going to talk about it a lot. And, you know, I'm sure the Lord, I mean, the Lord designed it that way. Have you ever noticed that sometimes someone's got to tell you something a lot before you start getting it? God knows our weakness, and so we're going to talk about this theme a lot. But this is, imp this is important for John and for us, and that is that we have come to know God if we keep his commandments. It's another test. The one who really knows God is going to have a life that is characterized by obedience to God. By obedience to God. So I, I believe it's quite clear, as we just talked about, and as, as John talked about here, it's quite clear that John does not think that the Christian is sinless. I mean, it's, it's obvious. He's already talked about that. 
The Christian is not someone who never sins, but the Christian is someone who lives a life, a daily walk of repentance and faith and obedience to God. That's who a Christian is. If your life is not characterized by those things, then, then John gives, you no, gives us no confidence in, to say, for you to say that you're a Christian. And, that, and in fact, that's what he says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, John says. And the truth is not in him. So Jesus is our only means of being saved. It's our only way to stand righteous before God. But at the same time, it's evident all through the Bible that a person who knows, if you, if you come to know God, God's going to change you. If you come to believe in Jesus Christ, it's, it's going to change you. It has to change you. How can you say, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me of my sins that I don't care that, I don't care that I'm doing them? Jesus, thank you for forgiving me for my sins that I'm going to keep doing. How can you say that if you really know him? If you really have come to him for mercy and forgiveness of your sins, how can you then at the same time be committed to still doing them? It doesn't make sense. So the Christian life is clear. And at the same time, we talk about all the time that Christian life is it's a miracle. It's the conversion. It's new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your old self is being put to death and your new life is being birthed in you. And so a person who uses Christ's forgiveness as a license or an excuse to disobey Christ shows that they don't really know him. It's, you know, it's, you know, few people say it out loud, but I just, I just, I know a lot of people think it. Well, I know this is wrong, but I'll ask Jesus to forgive me later. That's, you're in a bad spot. If you think you can presume upon the grace of Jesus Christ. If, that, if, that, if that's your attitude towards Christ's forgiveness, it, 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 according to the Bible, it tells me you don't, you, don't, you don't know him. You don't have that forgiveness because it hasn't changed you. You see, forgiveness changes you. If you're really repentant of your sin and you come to Christ and you say, forgive me of my sin, then that, it means that you don't want to sin anymore. It doesn't mean that you'll never sin, but it means that a change has happened in your life. Where we don't presume upon God's grace, but we're moved by it. If someone, if someone forgives you of your sin, something that you've done and you know it's wrong and someone forgives you of it, if you really accept that forgiveness, you don't turn around and go do the same exact thing again. Right? And so that's what it says. That's what he says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So at the end of the day, John says, it's not merely what we say or what we profess, but it's how we live that proves that we really know God. And see, it's, you know, it's, easy, it's easy to say things with our mouths that our heart doesn't mean. And it's, it's easy to say things that we think other people want to hear but that don't actually describe the reality about our lives. And the, the fact is, is that, and, and that it's really possible, not just that, but it's possible to deceive ourselves, right? In fact, we talked about that uh, last week in, in verse 8 there, uh, last time. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in other words, it's possible to deceive ourselves. And this is what John is saying. It's possible to convince myself 
that I know God when I don't. That's dangerous. And that's why the Bible does say things like test yourself and examine yourself. Peter says make your calling and election sure. Because we can deceive ourselves. So John is calling us to test ourselves. How do I know that I know God? Is my life characterized by obedience to him? Has my life changed since I came to profess to know God? Or there, do I make this? When's the last time I made a decision where I said, no, I'm not going to do that because that will not please Christ? When, when's the last time that our decision has been informed by our faith in Christ such that we chose one thing over another because we're a follower of Christ? How do you know that you know God if we keep his commandments? John says, Jesus, it's quite obvious, Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so what we see here is that Jesus, when he talks about, when he talks about evangelizing and proclaiming Christ and making disciples of Christ, he says that what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is to learn to obey Jesus. It's very simple. It's baseline, it's baseline Christianity. And this, I think it's important to understand because I think some people have taught some you know, either untrue or, best case, biblically unhelpful terminology of saying things like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but not a disciple. I think biblically, that's, even if they mean something correct by, I think it's bad language to use because the Bible doesn't talk like that. The language the Bible said, the, the Bible's pretty clear. Disciple is not like a next level Christian. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. It's not like a, it's not like a second level, okay? If you are a follower of Christ, you are a disciple. The word disciple simply means learner or follower, right? So to be a Christian is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to obey Christ, to follow him, to be his command. And so I just think we should be careful to abandon this, I think this kind of this, I think it's erroneous teaching that says that there's like these two kinds of levels in Christianity. If you're a follower of Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And you should be putting sin to death and growing in holiness and faith and love and obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that should be and that and that is characterizing your life. Why? Because you've been changed by God. And so let us not be those who profess Christ but don't obey him. Let us not be a liar, as John had said, and the truth not be in us. And then finally, John says here that whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And so um, John here, he says, he, he connects another idea to this knowing God. So he, John, he, a way to look at this passage is he's connecting all these ideas together. He's saying to know God is to keep his commandments, right? 
And then here he says, whoever keeps his word, or keeps, you know, same things, keep his commandments, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I think that most likely means our, lo- our love for God is perfected. And so notice that John, he, he's now equating all these things. Knowing God equals obeying God equals loving God. They're all together. They're all the same idea. To know God is to love him, is to obey him. They're all together in John's mind. All right? If we keep his word, John says, in him, in us, the one who keeps his word, in us, truly the love of God is perfected. And what that means there is kind of confusing in English because we don't use the word like that. But the word perfected, oftentimes, uh, it, it doesn't mean made perfect in the sense of flawless necessarily. What it means is it, it means to bring to completion. Right? It means to bring to completion. If we love God, our love for him is incomplete if we don't obey him, right? In other words, it's not, it's not full. It's not, it's, not, it's not real. Knowledge of God is not true knowledge if we don't keep his commandments. Love of God is not true love if we don't keep his commandments. The love of God in the person who really loves God, that love is perfected. It's brought to completion through our obedience, right? Through our obedience, it's, it's perfected, it's completed, it's fulfilled. If I tell my wife that I love her, but I never once actually do a loving thing for her, then what is that love? It's a farce. It's just words, right? It's nothing. But if I say that I love her, and then that love is actually followed by acts of love for her, then my love is brought to completion. It's made full. It's made complete. It's real. It's solid. Our love for God is perfected. It's completed. When, when that love and knowledge of God then overflows as it must, overflow from our lives in acts of love and obedience to him. Jesus in John 14, 15 said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And so you see in that one verse there, John equates two ideas. He said, he, he, I mean, he, he puts them right up together in, in parallel to one another. He, to believe Jesus is to obey Jesus. If you really have one, you're really going to do the other. And the final thing I want to talk about before we move on here is to think a little more deeply about what John means when he says, keep his commandments. When John, when John, he's telling us, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. What, what is he talking about? Keep Jesus' commandments. What commandments is he talking about? I think that John uses this language, and in his mind, the commandments are summed up in the command of love, the love command in, in, in John's uh, theology. For example, um, a little uh, later in the book in 1 John 4, John says this, and this is the commandment that we have from him. So he's talking about Jesus. This, he says we, we should keep Jesus' commandments, right? And then in John four twenty one, he says, and this is the commandment that we have from him. 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love, 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 love. Love. Sounds familiar? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. John's picking up on that language of Jesus, and he's saying that our whole command, the whole command of a follower of Christ is, is our command to love. Love God and love others. To keep. So I believe in John's theology, he understands that when we're supposed to keep Christ's commandment, that supremely means to love others. In John 15, 12, these are from the actual lips of Jesus. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this, and for John, this word commandment seems to almost take on this special meaning of the love command that we have from Christ. Why is this so, why is this so important? Because I think it's just important for us to think about it a little bit. Because when we understand that the command from God is to love, that says something different than I think a lot of people think about Christianity, as we've talked about before. I think a lot of people have this false view of Christianity, or this anemic or weak view of Christianity, that Christianity is just a bunch of don'ts, a bunch of thou shalt nots, a bunch of, I'm a good Christian as long as I don't do certain things. That's what makes me a Christian. But I want to say that in John's gospel here, and when he talks about this love command in the book of John, and he talks about that the, the whole of our commandments, and what Jesus said was the heart of the law, all of the commandments are summed up in this word, love God and love your neighbor. Well, that's a lot more than just not doing stuff, right? In other words, Christianity is just as much, if not more, about, not, about what you not, it's not, it's not just about what you don't do, but it's almost more about what you do do. You see, it's not enough to say, well, I, I, don't, I don't do all those things. That makes, me, that makes me a good person. But what John is saying is Christianity is about doing things. It's about loving people. It's not just about avoiding sin, although it is that. But it's about actually making, taking effort and making sacrifices to do acts of love for other people. It's the commandment to love. You want to keep, if we want to keep Jesus' commandment, then we have to actively Love and give ourselves for the good of others and not just merely try to avoid bad things. And I think we see this a little bit later in 1 John chapter 3. It says, this is what he talks about. He says, by this we know love. How? How do we know love? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see that? So if, our command, if the sum total of our command from Christ is to love one another, but there's actual needs that need to be met and we don't meet them, we're not obeying Christ. You see, this goes far beyond just avoiding things. It goes, far, it goes further saying... Is my heart like Jesus's? Am I, am I love? am I laying down my life for other people? Am I actively seeking to do good, to meet tangible needs, to tell others of the good news of Christ, to be there for others, to inconvenience myself, to help others? That's how we, how do we know love? Because Jesus did a lot more than inconvenience himself for us. And so to love, how do we know what love is? We look to Christ. And so that commandment that Christ is calling us to is to love. 
And so, so we should ask ourselves, what am I doing? To, am I keeping Christ's commandments? Am I loving others? Do I have a heart that is reaching out to others, that is seeking to help others? Am I generous with my time, my energy, my resources? For the sake of others, do I, am I laying down my life for others? That's how we know that we know God. So number one, we look to Christ's sacrifice. Number two, we keep his commands. Number three, we walk as he walked. We walk as he walked. Verse, uh, second half of verse 5 through verse 6 there, it says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Um, of course, he's really just kind of saying the same thing he's already said in different words there. But he's saying, if, but again, he's, he's connecting all these ideas together. So to know him is to keep his commandments, is to love him. And now he adds in some other ones. Is to, he says, is to abide in him. And to abide in him then means to walk as he walked. So again, in John's mind, all these are the same. To know God is to love God, is to obey God, is to abide in God, is to walk as Jesus walked. Right? And so... What does it mean to abide in Jesus? The, the clearest explanation of that is in John chapter 15. Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So, in John's mind, all these ideas are connected. To know him is to love him, is to obey him, is to abide in him. Right? To abide in Christ means that we are vitally connected to him as a branch is to the vine. That he is the source of our life and our energy, and our strength, and our power, and our, and our everything, right? Because being disconnected, being cut from the branch, <laughs> you know, you, you, you cutting back your bushes, and you, you cut them off, and they're still green for a few days. Then you come back, and they're dead, brown, rotting away. That's how we are. We're either connected to Christ or we aren't. Either his life is surging through us and we're bearing fruit for him or we're not and we're fruitless. And so another way to say what John has been saying is this. If you abide in Christ, then that means what? It means you're going to bear fruit, right? If you're connected to the vine, you're going to bear fruit. A a sign that you are not truly connected to the vine is that there's no fruit. There's no fruit. But if you bear fruit, but if you are in him, Jesus promises that you will bear fruit. Abide in me, and you will bear fruit. 
and I'll, I'll prune you, <laughs> but you'll bear fruit. And so God promises through Christ to give us all that is necessary to bear fruit. Our job is just to abide, <laughs> to be in him, to walk in him, to sit at his feet, to listen to him. And as, we, and as more of him gets into our heart and our lives and our minds, we will bear fruit. We won't be able to not bear fruit if we abide in Christ because his life will be surging in us. And then, he, and then John uses this language of walking, uh, walking as Jesus walked. If we abide in Jesus, we're going to walk as Jesus walked. You know, Jesus made his disciples. It's very simple. They just followed him everywhere he went. <laughs> That's a good way to make a disciple, to spend a lot of time with them. They see who you are, and you rub off on them. There's, there's, something that, there's, there's some things that can only be learned like that. You, they rub off on you. They see how he walked and lived and interacted and, and taught with others. And, they, and, and, if we, and if we are in Jesus like that, we're going to walk, John says. If we're really in him, if we really abide in him, then we won't be able to help but walk as he walked. I, I saw a picture recently that really, that really moved me. Can you show that picture, Wayne? You see that? That says something, doesn't it? When you're with somebody, when you follow them, they watch you. They follow you. When you're, when you're with Christ, when you're with him, you might not notice it, but you're going to start walking like him. That's what it means to abide in Christ. If we know him, if we abide in him, John says we're going to walk like him. And that language of walk is powerful, isn't it? We, we have a saying, you know, you can walk the walk, but can, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Walk means action. And not just that, but it means, it means carrying forward at a steady pace, right? The, a walk is something that we are, are, is a continuous action, right? Obeying Jesus, becoming a Christian, abiding in Christ, it's not just something that happens to you one time. It's not... It's not just walking an hour praying a prayer. Though I believe a lot of people got saved that way, but that doesn't save you. It's not getting dunked in water. Abiding in Christ, knowing Christ, loving Christ, all these things that John talked about. The way it happens, the way we know is, is what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a waking up every morning. Not just one time, but it's waking up every morning and repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. It's waking up every day and saying, today... I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And this is the, the picture, and this is the journey that we're on, and it is the sure destination of our faith. And that is that if we abide in Christ and as we walk with him, day by day, we will undoubtedly become more. It's God's guarantee. I, I referenced this verse earlier, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You walk in the Lord, you walk in the Spirit, you follow Him, you look to Christ. Other says, you look to Christ. The more we look to Him, the more we'll be changed to be like Him. And the sure, the sure destination of every believer in Christ is perfect conformity to His image. He's guaranteed it. Because when he returns, the dead shall be raised. And we will receive glorified bodies which cannot sin anymore. That's our guarantee. But now is the time where we inch toward that line to becoming who God has guaranteed that one day we will become. Let's pray. Thank you for this evening, Lord. Thank you for your word.